Chapter 8 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. Conclusions by George Finch. Jeffrey Bruce and I arrived back at the base camp early on the afternoon of May 29. The next few days were spent in resting, and I then underwent the same experience as the members of the first climbing party, that is, instead of recovering my strength rapidly during the first three or four days, if anything, a further decline took place. However, as the weather appeared fine, and there seemed promise of a bright spell prior to the breaking of the monsoon, it was decided to make another attempt on the mountain. Of the remaining climbing members of the expedition, Somerville was undoubtedly the fittest, with Mallory a good second. Both had enjoyed some ten days' rest since their first assault upon Mount Everest, and therefore had a chance of recovering from the abnormal strain to which they had been submitted. Medical opinion as to my condition after so brief a rest was somewhat divided, but in the end I was passed as sufficiently fit to join in the third attempt. On the 3rd of June we left the base camp. The party consisted of Wakefield as M.O., Crawford and later Morris as transport officers, Mallory, Somerville, and myself as climbers. The attempt was to be made with oxygen, and I was placed in command. It required a great effort for me to get as far as Camp 1, and I realized there that the few days' rest which I had enjoyed at the base camp had been quite insufficient to allow of my recuperation. During the night the weather turned with a vengeance, and it snowed heavily, and I knew that there could be no object in my proceeding farther. After giving Somerville final detailed instructions regarding the oxygen apparatus, I wished them all the best of luck, and on the 4th returned to the base camp. As Strutt, Longstaff, and Morshead were leaving next day for Darjeeling, I was given and availed myself of the opportunity of accompanying them. That return journey constitutes one of the most delightful experiences of my life. Within a week of leaving the base camp, I had entirely regained my strength, although a certain tenderness in the soles of my feet made itself felt for some considerable time. For the most part the weather was warm, and everywhere the eye feasted on the riotous colouring of blossoms such as we had never before seen. The only fly in the ointment was the ever-present sense of defeat, coupled with the knowledge that with only a little better luck we should have won through. In spite of our failure, however, I felt that we had learnt much, and perhaps the most important lesson of all was that we had been taught the real value of oxygen. Prior to the formation of the 1922 expedition, the oxygen problem had already been the subject of much discussion round which two distinct schools of thought had arisen. The first, headed by Professor G. Dreyer, FRS, Professor of Pathology at the University of Oxford, was staunch to the belief that, without the assistance of a supply of oxygen carried in containers on the back of the climber, it would be impossible for a man to reach the summit of Mount Everest. 
the second body of scientific opinion held that not only would it be possible for a man to attain the summit of everest unaided by an artificial supply of oxygen but that the weight of such a supply would only hamper the climber in his efforts and thus completely counterbalance any advantages likely to accrue from its use to arrive at an impartial conclusion as to the correctitude of these two divergent opinions it is only necessary to give careful consideration to the results achieved on the two high climbs of may twenty two and may twenty seven respectively the former was made without an artificial supply of oxygen the latter with the first climbing party consisting of mallory morshead norton and somerville left the north coal at seven a m on the twentieth of may and that afternoon at an altitude of twenty five thousand feet above sea level pitched a camp just off the great north ridge leading down from the shoulder morshead had suffered from the cold and was evidently unwell one of norton's ears had been badly frostbitten and mallory had frostbitten fingertips somerville alone was to all intents and purposes as yet untouched snow fell during the night but they were untroubled by wind at eight o'clock next morning they left their camp all save morshead who apparently at the end of his tether and unable to go farther had to remain behind after over six hours climbing mallory norton and somerville succeeded in reaching an altitude of twenty six thousand nine hundred and eighty five feet so that since their departure from their high camp they had gained a vertical height of one thousand nine hundred and eighty five feet at a rate of ascent of three hundred thirty feet per hour the point at which they turned back lies below the shoulder of the great north ridge and is in horizontal distance about one and one-eighth miles from the summit and rather over two thousand feet below it in vertical height they began to retrace their steps at two thirty in the afternoon and regained their high camp at four o'clock their rate of descent therefore was one thousand three hundred twenty feet per hour shortly after four p m accompanied by morshead they started on the return journey to the north coal where they arrived at eleven thirty that night a rate of descent of two hundred seventy feet per hour we had seen them on their way down from their high camp and acting on instructions from colonel strutt we went up towards the north coal on the twenty-third to render them assistance we met them just above the foot of the steep slopes leading up the coal they were obviously in the last stages of exhaustion as indeed men should be who had done their best on a mountain like mount everest on the twenty-fifth of may the second party consisting of jeffrey bruce tagebeer and myself left the north coal our porters who did not use oxygen left at eight o'clock we using oxygen left at nine thirty a m and in an hour and a half succeeded in overtaking them at an altitude of twenty four thousand five hundred feet where somewhat fatigued with their three hours effort they paused to rest a moment's calculation will show that we had been climbing at the rate of one thousand feet per hour leaving the porters to follow we eventually gained an altitude of twenty five thousand five hundred feet where owing to bad weather we were constrained to camp 
it was not until two o'clock in the afternoon that the porters rejoined us, despite the fact that our own progress had been hindered by the necessity for much step-cutting. That night in our high camp was a night of trial and no rest, and the following day, the 26th, was little better. In addition, our supply of food was exhausted. Then followed a second night, when the advantages of using oxygen to combat fierce cold were strikingly evident. At six o'clock on the morning of the 27th, having had practically no rest for two nights and a day, half-starved and suffering acutely from hunger, we set out from our high camp in full hopes of gaining the summit of Mount Everest. Half an hour later, at an altitude of 26,000 feet, Tejbir broke down, an unfortunate occurrence that may be largely attributed to his lack of really windproof clothing. On arriving at a height of 26,500 feet, we were forced to leave the ridge, so violent and penetratingly cold was the wind to which we were exposed. The thousand feet from our camp up to this point had occupied one and a half hours, some twenty minutes of which had been employed in rearranging the loads when Tejbir broke down. Our rate of progress, therefore, had been about nine hundred feet per hour, in spite of the fact that we each carried a load of over forty pounds. After leaving the ridge, we struck out over difficult ground across the great north face of the mountain, gaining but little in altitude, but steadily approaching our goal. Eventually, we decided to turn back at a point less than half a mile in horizontal distance from, and about 1,700 feet below, the summit. Thus, although we had climbed in vertical height only some 300 feet higher than the first party, nevertheless we were more than twice as close to the summit than they had been when they turned back. To summarize the two performances, the first party established a camp at an altitude of 25,000 feet, occupied it for one night, and finally reaching a point 26,985 feet in height, and one and one-eighth miles from the summit, returned without a break to the North Coal. The second party established a camp at an altitude of 25,500 feet, occupied it for two nights and almost two days, and eventually reaching a point of 27,300 feet high and less than a half a mile from the summit, returned without a break to Camp 3. The weather conditions throughout were incomparably worse than those experienced by the first party. The difference between the two performances cannot be ascribed to superior climbing powers on the part of the second party, for the simple reason that all the members of the first party were skilled and proven mountaineers, while Geoffrey Bruce and Lance Corporal Tejbeer, though at home in the hills, had never before set foot on a snow and ice mountain. No matter how strong and willing and gallant an inexperienced climber may be, his lack of mountaineering skill and knowledge inevitably results in that prodigality of effort, much of it needless, which invariably and quickly places him at a grave disadvantage when compared with the trained mountaineer. The strength of a climbing party is no greater than that of its weakest member. Judged on this basis, the second party was very weak compared with the first, 
and the superior results obtained by the former can only be ascribed to the fact that they made use of an artificial supply of oxygen. The contention, therefore, that the disadvantages of its weight would more than counterbalance the advantages of an artificial supply of oxygen may be dismissed as groundless, and the assumption may be made that on any further attempt upon Everest, oxygen will form a most important part of the climber's equipment. The question next arises as to the exact stage in the proceedings at which recourse should be made to the assistance of oxygen. The strongest members of the expedition felt fit and well, and recuperated readily from fatigue, at Camp 3, 21,000 feet above sea level, but at the North Coal this was no longer the case. Thus it would seem that the upper level of true acclimatization lies somewhere between 21,000 and 23,000 feet. I would therefore advocate commencing to use oxygen somewhere between these two levels, preferably at the foot of the steep slopes leading up to the North Coal. The use of small quantities would allow the climber to reach the coal without unduly tiring himself. From the North Coal to a high camp situated at an altitude of about 26,500 feet, a slightly increased quantity of oxygen would suffice to enable the climber to progress almost as rapidly as he would in the much lower levels of the Alps. We know from experience that a camp at the above-mentioned altitude can be readily established, and in all except the worst of weather conditions, a party can make its way down again. Between the camp and the summit there would be a vertical height of only 2,500 feet, and it is conceivable that with a full supply of oxygen this distance could be covered in as little as four hours. I am strongly of the opinion that only one camp should be used between the North Coal and the summit. No matter what precautions are taken, man's strength is rapidly sapped during the stay at these great altitudes, and the plan of campaign most likely to ensure success would appear to be leisurely and comfortable progress as far as the North Coal, the establishment of a high camp at 26,500 feet, and a final dash to the summit. This last part of the program, however, would not be feasible unless a small dump of oxygen were made at a height of about 27,500 feet. To do this, it would be necessary for a specially detailed party to spend one night at the high camp, and on the following day employ their strength in making a dump somewhere above the shoulder. This done, they would then be able to return to the North Coal with the satisfaction of knowing that they had made it possible for the actual climbing party to win through. It is by no means yet certain which is the best line of approach to the North Coal. The route hitherto followed, via the East Rongbuk Glacier, is tedious and roundabout, but it has the advantage of being well sheltered from the wind, and, except for the final steep slopes beneath the coal, safe under any conditions. Much more direct, however, and probably less arduous, is the approach from over the main Rongbuk Glacier. The line of ascent thence to the summit of the coal presents no real difficulty, and, provided it is not found to be too exposed to the wind, is undoubtedly much safer, even after heavy snowfalls, than that previously followed. 
In the light of past experience, one can hardly hope to count on good weather as an ally. Adequate protection in the form of windproof clothing will enable the climber to face all but actual snowstorms. Climbing parties making the final assaults on the summit should be small, consisting of two men and no more. In the event of one man collapsing, his comrade, if at all up to scratch, should be able to get him down in safety. By so limiting the size of the parties, a number of attacks, each one as strong as if affected by a large and cumbersome team of, say, four, could be carried out. Again, in the case of small parties, as suggested, mutual attention to each other's oxygen outfit is possible, and any necessary repair or adjustment more expeditiously made. The type of climber who should go farthest on Mount Everest would appear to be similar to that which best suits the Alps. Of the physical attributes necessary, the following points, in addition to what is usually termed perfect physical fitness, may be emphasized. In the rarefied atmosphere of high altitudes, the larger the vital capacity, the better. By the term vital capacity is meant the maximum amount of air an individual is able to expel from the lungs by voluntary effort after taking the deepest possible inspiration. Compared with the lean, spare type of individual, the thick-set, often muscle-bound man, though possibly equal to an immense effort provided it is of short duration, is, as a rule, at a great disadvantage. The expedition has also shown, beyond all possible doubt, that the tall man is less prone to become fatigued than one of shorter stature. Again, as is well known amongst mountaineers, the long-legged, short-trunk type of body is immensely superior to the short-legged, long-trunk type. Perhaps more important than perfect physical fitness to the would-be conqueror of Everest is the possession of the correct mentality. Absolutely essential are singleness of aim, namely, the attainment of the summit, and unswerving faith in the possibility of its achievement. Half-heartedness in even one member of the attacking party spells almost certain failure. Many a strong party in the Alps has failed to reach its objective through the depressing effect of the presence of one doubting Thomas. Like an insidious disease, a wavering, infirm belief is liable to spread and cause the destruction of the hopes of those who come into contact with it. The man who cannot face Mount Everest without at the same time proclaiming that the mountain has the odds in its favor would do better by himself and others to leave the proposition severely alone. Of almost equal importance is the possession of what may be called mental energy or willpower, or simply go. Mountaineers may be divided into two classes according to their behavior when, tired and well-nigh exhausted, they are called upon to make yet one more supreme effort. There are those who, lacking the willpower necessary to force their jaded bodies on to still further action, give in. Others, possessed of an almost inexhaustible fund of mental energy, will rise to the occasion, not once, but time and again. Physical pain is the safety valve which nature has provided to prevent harm being done to the body by exhaustion. 
but nature's margin of safety is a wide one. On Everest, this margin must be narrowed down if necessary to the vanishing point, and this can only be done by the climber, whose fund of mental energy is sufficient to drive his body on and on, no matter how intense the pains of exhaustion, even to destruction if need be. End of chapter 8